Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions or discussions of trauma, queerphobia, abuse and harassment that may be distressing to some listeners. If you need assistance, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. There are certain people who feel that neurodiversity is not disability and disability is not neurodiversity, but I am someone who is disabled and I am someone who is neurodiverse. Sometimes they're joined, but sometimes they're not. There's a big cure narrative out there that I don't want because if you take away these parts that might disable me, you're taking away who I am. And then what do you have left? We are also confused by gender. We're often laughing at gender and we're often looking at gender like as if it's just another coat that we put on. We see the routine of every day that everyone lives and we're just like, why? We question it and we challenge it. It's a shift from feeling like one is sort of not right or an outsider or broken in some way to kind of going, actually, this is who I am and there's a reason I experience the world in this way and there's not some particular sort of thing that happened to me that made me this way. Um, This is actually a legitimate and important experience of the world. Welcome to QR Code, an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers discussing diverse and intersecting topics. QR Code is created and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Nam, Melbourne. My name is Michaela Vesho. On this episode, I speak with Alison Bennett, a non-binary person, neuroqueer new media artist, founding member of the Queer Tech Artist Collective, university lecturer and parent. Their work explores the performance and technology of gender identity and the convergence of biological and digital skin as virtual prosthesis. Melam Rose, a non-binary neuroqueer person, an advocate for bi, trans, non-binary and neurodiverse rights, a grassroots activist and founder of Spectrum Intersections, a peer-led group for people aged 18 and over who identify as neurodiverse and on the LGBTIQA plus spectrums. And William Elm, a mixed race, kabi-kabi, neuroqueer man, avant composer and sonic wizard. He adapts his keyboard multi-instrumentalism to create experimental minimalist music that combines his neuroqueer identity and indigeneity. Alison, Mellum, William and I discuss and unpack the term neuroqueer, the intersection of being queer and neurodivergent, in the context of disability, ableism, visibility and representation, and the complex navigation of access to healthcare resources, queer spaces and societal expectations. We start these conversations by describing who is neuroqueer and what is neuroqueering. What neuroqueer disidentification means in relation to existing gender, sexuality and disability theories and experiencing othering as a neuroqueer person in typical and non-typical queer spaces. Here is Alison, Mellum and William describing their neuroqueer identity. Neuroqueer is a neologism. It's a relatively new made-up word that's only been around a short period of time. It's a conjunction of neurodiversity and queerness. Neurodiversity or neurodivergence is a term that is seeking to consider the way in which humans are diverging in multiple ways around our neurology. It's sitting in counter to the idea of neuronormativity, so the idea that there's a normal type of neurology. 
it's often applied to autism. And that's certainly my entry point to the term. Autism is, in a clinical sense, could be defined as people who have a pattern of extreme strengths and weaknesses. They might have an extreme capacity for mathematics, for example, but unable to find matching socks. But it has to be said that pattern of extreme strengths and extreme weaknesses is different for every autistic person. It's the pattern of extreme strengths and weaknesses that is the thing that's in common. Often experiences such as synesthesia, for example, when you hear sound and see colours at the same time, it might involve proprioception, so the way in which you understand your body in space. Some autistic people are very clumsy. Some autistic people have a really heightened awareness of where their body is in space. There's also a cluster of common traits around emotional processing, so the way in which one experiences our emotions. For myself, I experience my emotions at a distance. I'm very aware of my emotions, but I'm flooded by them or inside them, but I can observe my emotions from the outside, as it were. There's a a huge overlap between my understanding of queerness from an identity and political point of view. There's a lot of similar characteristics between what I understand as queerness and my experience of autism. It's almost like a sort of a, an inability to follow social scripts. And I often define it as not that I'm socially inept or that I don't know what's going on. I just don't see the need to follow expected social scripts. It's not that I am ignorant. I just don't see the need to follow certain social rules. I struggle a lot with mainstream media's portrayal of neurodiversity, and it's not just autism. It's also Tourette's and OCD, especially Tourette's. Like Most people don't know the difference between coprolalia and Tourette's, coprolalia being vulgar and inappropriate tics, which is what we'll see on media, and Tourette's syndrome, which is motor and vocal tics. So it can be really frustrating watching these constant stereotypes and caricatures of who we're supposed to be on TV. I didn't know that what I was experiencing was Tourette's because all I had was representation from what I saw on TV. And I didn't fit that and I didn't really understand that. So by the time I actually got to acknowledge who I was, I'm like, oh, actually, all of that stuff is completely wrong. And so not only does it really make you feel like you just don't fit in, with whatever you're supposed to be. But when you look at our community in a broad sense, it it strokes us with a really broad brush. I mean, there's not one way to be trans. There's not one way to be bi. There's not one way to be autistic. But oftentimes in TV, we keep seeing the the same look over and over again. And it's not necessarily helpful. And I think that plays a part in that othering of us because we're just expected to be something that we're not. And when we don't fit that, it's really harmful and and it can be really hard. Well, I knew that I was autistic because I was diagnosed by Tony Atwood, who's one of the leading autistic specialists in the world. Back then it was known as Asperger's syndrome for me particularly, since I've been brought underneath the autism umbrella. And I've always known that I'm I've been queer. Like it's it's not something you necessarily discover it's something that you uncover over time I think and you always know but I didn't really understand the intersections between queerness and autism until very late in life until fairly recently about the correlations and the intersections and the same sorts of thoughts and ideas within the community 
a lot of autistic people are confused by the performance of every day of these sort of outfits and stances that we put on in order to talk to each other. And a lot of autistic people are confused by that or they think it's funny or they're sort of curious about it in a othering way. Like the statistics are that a whole bunch of autistic people are trans, are non-binary, are genderqueer, are asexual or, or demisexual. Something that neuroqueer people do is we embrace uncertainty and we embrace that challenge. It's always evolving, it's always changing, it changes with the paradigm, it changes with the psychological academic changes, it changes with society. It also changes through environments and through finding community as well. There's an incredible emergence of autistic self-advocacy movement in the last couple of years. There's almost a way in which the self-awareness of autism as an identity rather than a disability has been radically emerging in recent years and are beginning to look to queer politics and queer activism for models of how autism can be understood and articulated through using queer activist strategies. Othering. Look, that's a really interesting term. I teach a class at RMIT School of Art where myself and Richard Harding run a studio called Printers Other, where we're looking at the idea of othering as a, a rich, creative position with which to move forward. I think I have always experienced myself as an outsider, and it wasn't really until I was diagnosed with autism that I actually began to understand what that was. Often people think that being diagnosed with autism is kind of like a, a reductive label. It's a really common experience that when you're diagnosed with autism to kind of go, hallelujah, this is just fantastic, because it connects you to a larger community of people who have had similar experiences and experience of the world. I'm autistic, I'm teretic, I have OCD. I have so many different things that it's not just one small thing. It's a big, broad thing. And I guess the same goes for queer. I'm bi, I'm trans, I'm non-binary, you know, queer is also so lovingly embracing. And the thing is that all of these identities that I have, they're not really siloed. I, I don't get to have them in, in separate sections of my life. They, they're intrinsical. They make up a core part of who I am. So queer is that it's just such a beautiful way to bring them all together and just say, here I am. Here is the whole of me. There's a gorgeous piece of research that I saw recently that found that autistic people are eight times more likely to identify as gender divergent than the general population. So there's a huge intersection. I used to be very confused when people talked about me as being female and what that was like, particularly as a teenager in the 80s. That was something that really didn't make a lot of sense to me. And now that I've begun to understand more about how a lot of autistic people do not identify as male or female. That's a really affirming experience for me that I know that that's part of something that's not just me. It's also other people have a very similar experience to their gender identity. They're not entirely separate. The whole part of the term neuroqueer is recognising that all of these things are in a Zen diagram and all of these things don't happen on their own. There's a lot of crossover between queer expression and autistic expression and between Indigenous expression. It's all about that norm, pushing the norm. And it all depends on the space, depending on your awareness of who's around and what parts of yourself you bring out and who else is around. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health podcast made for and by queers, produced in the studios of 3CR. In this episode, we unpack the term neuroqueer, the intersection of being queer and neurodivergent. 
we continue the conversation to discuss disability and explore broad notions of representation and visibility in queer spaces and in relation to societal expectations and how ableism that goes unchecked and unquestioned can lead to disabled people feeling repressed, misunderstood and othered. In typical queer spaces, particularly clubs and other spaces that don't have access needs for neurodivergent people, such as quiet spaces or non-alcoholic spaces, I've always felt distance from those spaces, especially places like queer open nights that that say that they're all inclusive, but then don't have any sort of non-sensory spaces as well. I have to navigate through very neurotypical and heteronormative spaces. I play in a lot of bars and a lot of venues that don't even consider queer people and don't even consider non-binary people and trans people. There's still gendered bathrooms even and the spaces are very heteronormative and very strict on that. Even though there's an overwhelming statistical correlation between creativity, queerness and neurodivergence, Queer people have always been creative and we've always been quite a majority of the creative community. And yet the spaces are continuing to not cater to us. I felt like I was a little late to the party with queer. (laughs) And so by the time I got there, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I fit. I don't know if I'm doing things right. Am I doing it right? Am I correcting? Am I correct at this? I'm not sure which I found really, really hard. And I guess as I got older, I, I've stopped doing things. I don't really go to parties much anymore. I can't deal with the noise and, and the sounds and the sights, the sensory overload. Being late to the party meant that I didn't know where my community was and I found it really, really hard because there's so much of this loud, bright culture that's kind of opposing to, to how I experience the world. Existing in the city is a big struggle. It's a daily struggle. I I just feel like I'm always expected to just adapt who I am, even if that is not actually possible for me. I have noise-cancelling headphones that I wear pretty much all the time. I've got sunglasses that I wear inside. Things are really quite bright for me. I can barely catch public transport during rush hour. It can be really hard, even outside of my disabilities or my inability to catch a tram during rush hour, sometimes I feel like it can be really hard to really express who I am. I'm absolutely petrified of people. Having Tourette's syndrome and walking around the world um, is, is really hard because people look at me and they don't know what they're looking at. People are either giving me a wide berth or they're coming up to me and they're trying to accost me. So when you add on that layer of queer, it makes me always feel like I'm in this element of danger and I'm, I'm really scared to go out there and fly a big flag and go, hey, I'm queer. I guess like when I look back at my, my very first experience with trying to be proud was going to Pride March and getting heckled for being bi and that was pretty harsh and I was really scared and I'm still really scared and it, it can be rough. I have complex post-traumatic stress which adds this other element to me and my life. And I want to be able to connect more with people, but it can be so difficult because they don't know what they're looking at and it takes a while for you to get to know me. And then once you get to know me, then I'm like, I'm here. But, you know, when you look at me on the street, I'm not the stranger that you want to meet. I'm the stranger that you want to run away from. Eye contact for autistic people can be often very painful and uncomfortable in terms of 
other intersections as well, being Indigenous, there's a lot of culture surrounding eye contact with that, where not making eye contact with someone is actually a sign of respect, as a sign of listening to them properly. And even you asking me this question, I wasn't looking at you at all. I was staring off at something else, but fully listening to you. And it's very often easy to spot a neurodivergent or at least an autistic person that way because it often seems like we're often in our own world but we're actually so hypersensitive to things we're concentrating on like every little thing that's happening around us and we can be very still as well I think which a lot of people can find uncomfortable but no we're fully aware and yeah we're just trying to deal with that hypersensitivity. There certainly are areas of autism that are disabling, but much more in terms of the social model of disability. So it's a disability because of the way that the culture and society responds and frames it rather than it being an intrinsic disability. But there are experiences of autism that for differing people in different situations is profoundly traumatic and disabling that need to be acknowledged as real. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health podcast made for and by queers, produced in the studios of 3CR. In this episode, we unpack the term neuroqueer, the intersection of being queer and neurodivergent. Alison, Mellon, William and I continue the conversation by exploring home and care and access to healthcare resources in a queer sense that is in opposition to heteronormative traditional family arrangements, gender essentialism and heterocentrism and explore how neuroqueer domesticities challenge the family unit, especially for those families living on the autism spectrum. You know, as queer people, until fairly recently, we didn't have the same trajectory as heteronormative people. You know, we couldn't get married, we couldn't have kids. The neuroqueer movement is all about difference versus disability. And it challenges the family unit because it challenges the norm. It challenges the norm of perfectly behaved kids, perfectly gendered and heteronormative kids. It challenges behaviour, it challenges the performance of every day. Being like, hey, the way you perform every day isn't the way that I want to perform every day. And what you want to do isn't particularly what I want to do. I grew up, I suppose, in a non-normative home. Um, My mother and father were never together. I grew up with my mother and my sister. And my mother had a series of abusive boyfriends. So already that that idea of a perfect home was already dismantled at a very young age for me. I always had to find a space, like a sanctuary, already away from that, you know, away from the abuse and everything. When I turned 13, that was when music became my sanctuary and when I would skip a lot of classes and just go bash at a piano for hours and that sort of release of stuff. Also, as queer people, we often have to create our own families. As autistic people, we definitely do as well. So we often can often be closer to a teacher than our parents, and we can often be closer to like some other person than, than people in our family. As a parent, it's a whole other can of worms. I was talking about my experience of being a teacher and an academic is a bit like being a parent, in that you've got to accept that you're going to fail quite a lot of the time. I gave birth to twins 21 years ago, these two incredible people. One of them has been formally diagnosed with autism, and that was the beginning of a journey for me. And I gradually came out and came to identify as a queer person, and my children have been on that journey with me. 
my daughter Mika loves telling her friends that she's a, a gay baby and how important growing up in the queer community has been for her. Lane is profoundly queer person. Both my kids came to queer theory not simply through growing up with me, but through the internet and with their own particular journey and, and reading. We spend a lot of time talking through and reading queer theory together, which is hilarious. I often use Lane as one of my assistants. If I don't have time to read something, they'll read it for me and tell me what's relevant in the ideas in that. It's just intrinsic to who we are. It's our own little bubble. It's not something that we are aware of as being different. It's the world that we've built for ourselves inside our little home. Yeah, so for a long time, because I grew up very poor, so I didn't have a lot of access to specialists or therapists or anything like that growing up. And it wasn't until, I think a couple of years ago, when I did start taking medication for my autism, because in the beginning... My mother was sort of against it and wanted me to learn how to cope with it rather than with medication, which is both a blessing and a curse, I think. It's very difficult to access normal healthcare services because a lot of places want you to call on the phone. A lot of places want you to give 24 hours if you're going to change your appointment when things such as autism fits and and feeling overwhelmed, you can't time that. Like, we don't know that it's going to happen and so... For example, I've been banned from the dental hospital because I missed three appointments. I know it's disparaging in a way because I couldn't call on the day and the doctor's office is one of the few places where I actually get the physical parts of my autism, which is where my body wants to sort of crawl up into a ball. So I tend to pigeon toe, I tend to hunch back. And I bought a cane specifically for those places. The layout of doctors, the way that you have to sit there with everyone else and sort of sit there with your stress and wait and and sort of ruminate over everything. It can be a very cold experience where they're like, all right, come in, what do you want? And then, all right, go, sort of thing. And you're just like, ah, I don't, don't really know and they don't really have a lot of time for you, I guess, in a way. Outside of the peer support that Spectrum provides, we also do a lot of advocacy and education as well because creating an organisation, it's growing itself because I think that advocacy is still really important. Oftentimes when we're looking at disability and autism, I sit in the state government's autism advisory group that they keep forgetting LGBTIQA and I'm like, you forgot something here. I think Spectrum Intersection in the future is really providing a really vital role in how we can ensure our future in policy and government. Hopefully we can make sure that we've got policy and legislation that means that maybe our life is a little bit easier and ensure that our rights remain and we're treated with dignity and respect because that's really important. It's a human right, but I think it's forgotten so often when people just see words and they just see labels and they don't see the people and the communities that live within them. So talking with my doctors, I often find that I need to go through a process of educating my doctors and my psychologists about autism. I often find that I sometimes feel like they should be paying me rather than me paying them. I had this gorgeous doctor. I could see the penny drop when she suddenly realised that there weren't just autistic children, that autistic children grow into autistic adults. That had never occurred to her before in her life. And it, it then had huge impacts on her practice as, as a doctor when she started to identify other patients who were adult autistic people who hadn't been diagnosed. 
I mean, it's kind of sad that a doctor would spend their professional life not realising that this was a, a thing. Autistic children grow into autistic adults. It's not something that you grow out of. You just get better at navigating the world. Whilst the difficulty of being neuroqueer is evident, being neuroqueer is positive, an advantage, and a beautiful way to build a stronger sense of self and community and understanding the broad navigation of society, as Alison, Mellum and William explain. The more comfortable I am with myself, the more comfortable people are with me. But I'm also more accepting that with the fact that I don't fit in. And it's kind of paradoxical, is that the more comfortable I am with not fitting in, the more I am able to connect with people. It's this strange thing that the less I care, the easier things are. It's really great to be able to feel and experience the world in such extremes. Like, sounds, are they're not just loud, they're... They're amazing. Songs to me, I can I can feel them like vibrating in my soul and so wonderful to experience the world with such passion that I wouldn't change this for the world. It is amazing. I'm always reaching for what I call a brain sound. It's what my brain sounds like. So my music, it's an ever-changing exploration of what my brain sounds like of what an autistic brain sounds like, of what a queer brain sounds like, of what an indigenous brain sounds like, of what a mixed race brain sounds like. You know, all these different parts of me, what do all those things sound like together and how to make that sound happen. I think what's really wonderful about the neuroqueer movement is we have quite a large umbrella. We're able to question not only ableist spaces, but also heteronormative spaces and queerphobic spaces and And we have a very wide coverage with our movement, which is very exciting. For more resources on neuroqueer, the autism spectrum and neurodivergence, you may find the following resources helpful. Neuroqueer, an introduction by Nick Walker. Authoring Autism on Rhetoric and Neurological Queerness by Melanie Yago. Rise of the Neuroqueers, Inside the Polysexual History of Autism by Scott D'Agostino and guest Melon Rose's peer-led group Spectrum Intersections that meets on the third Wednesday of every month in Carlton, Nam, Melbourne. For more information, visit spectrumintersections.org. Links and details to these resources will be available in the episode's show notes. You've been listening to QR Code with Michaela Veshaw in conversation with Alison Bennett, Melon Rose and William Elm discussing it and unpacking the term neuroqueer, the intersection of being neurodivergent and queer in the context of disability, ableism, visibility and representation and the complex navigation of access to healthcare resources, queer spaces and societal expectations. Listen to and download our episodes from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code and follow us on Facebook at QR code 3CR. QR code would like to thank the City of Yarra for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Thank you also to Fan Chi Lu for their assistance in the editing process of this episode and to Arliff Thomas Dodds for collating and arranging the audio transcription of the interviews. A transcript of this episode will be available to view and download via the episode's show notes at 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation, produced by Michaela Veshaw. Next time on QR Code, Anya Saravanan will be discussing access to healthcare resources for trans and gender diverse folks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>